Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to this week's episode of Intersectionality. I am your host, Reverend Dr. Angela Raven Anderson. In this segment, we explore how our understanding of God and who God is calling us to be is informed at the intersection of race, gender, and religion. We examine how the combination of liberation, womanist, and egalitarian theology presents an understanding of God that and God's kingdom that embraces, restores, uplifts, and transforms all who would enter therein. When we consider and learn from the wisdom gained in the lived experiences of women of color, our view of God's kingdom is stretched, contextualized, enriched, and expanded. Let's listen to their voices as they move us beyond the stained glass ceiling. Our guest today is the Reverend Will Gaffney, a womanist biblical scholar, The Reverend Will Gaffney uh, is the Right Reverend Sam B. Halsey Professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. She is the author of Womanist Midrash, a reintroduction to women of the Torah and of the throne. She uh, She has also written Daughters of Miriam, Women's Prophets in Ancient Israel, and co-editor of the People's Bible and the People's Companion to the Bible. She is the author of a women's lectionary for the whole church and translator of its biblical selections. The first two volumes, Year A and W, a standalone volume, were published in August. Volumes B and C are due in 2023 and 2024. She is currently writing a second volume of Womanist Midrash focusing on women in the prophets. She is a former army chaplain and a congregational and a former congregational pastor in the AME Zion Church, a former member of Dorsche Derek Reconstructionist Minion of the Germantown Jewish Center in Philadelphia. She has co-taught courses with and for the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Seminary in Wincott, Pennsylvania. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Gaffney. Dr. Gaffney, welcome this afternoon. Thank you, Dr. Revan Anderson. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we have a lot to talk about today. I am so excited um, about your most recent work. Well, your entire body of work, actually. I uh, had the opportunity to meet Dr. Gaffney many years ago. She was doing a a presentation um, there in the DFW area. And uh, at that time, I think I was introduced to your first, well, the first work that I was familiar with, which was the Womanist Midrash. And um, was just, uh, what can I say? My mind was kind of blown open as I began to uh, first hear you that day and then reading um, that work of, about understanding the importance of translation, the importance of words in the scripture and how those things uh, really 
bring us to our understanding of, of God and um, the things that we are taught about God. Uh, growing up in a in a tradition that I said that, you know, we 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 hold to the scriptures and we want to speak where the Bible speaks and, and be silent where the Bible is silent. Um, this kind of very strict literalist trans uh, translation uh, and, and interpretation. I it, it this was very, uh, for me, empowering as I listened to your presentation. So I wanted us to begin just a little bit because uh, first of all, I would ask that you share just a little bit about your background, about who you are uh, for our guest today. That's such a far ranging <laughs> question. <clears throat> the pieces of my background that contribute to make me who I am as a scholar and as a thinking person of faith are part parental. Both of my parents were educators. Uh, so I had a home curriculum that was the Black Studies, Black Power, Black Liberationist curriculum since I wasn't getting that in school. Uh, it was my, my mother's determination that we have the right kind of Christian educational formation. So we moved from denomination to denomination based on what kind of education program the local church had, because that was important to her. Uh, my parents took us around, not around the world, but around Europe and then later uh, Canada and the Caribbean. So travel, um, the love of reading and between travel and language, travel and reading, the love of language. Um, I'm not quite sure where my interest in science came in. My mother was a science teacher, so I'm sure that's that's part of it. But I don't remember, you know, doing science projects with her. But my first career was as a, a research biologist. Uh, the military runs deep in my family. I'm a third generation soldier. Um, my concern for for women and how they're treated, how they show up how they're permitted to show up. Um, I was reading feminist theological texts by the pool uh, before I went to college, mm -hmm. uh, just out of my own ravenous curiosity. Uh, I became clear that I was a feminist uh, in college and uh, later uh, uh, took up the mantle womanist. So those are uh, the pieces that shape me the most. Okay. And, and I think that your work really reflects this, um, this concern for women uh, and, and how it aligns with what we see in the text itself. Um, much of your work is around lifting women and lifting the presence of feminine in in what is a very patriarchal context that we have in the scriptures. Kind of talk about that a little bit. Certainly. So when I wrote my first book, Daughters of Miriam, Women Prophets in Ancient Israel, it was an extension of my dissertation and some work that I had done as a divinity school student. My perspective was that we were never studying the prophets if we were only studying male prophets. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, um, in some ways, it was a uh, lifting women project, but it was also uh, 
a biblical literacy project. And that's really how I understand my work. I understand it to be feminist work. I understand it to be womanist work, but I understand it to be biblical literacy work. Uh, People who claim to know the text only know certain portions of the text. Mm -hmm. And some of that, depending on your religious tradition, can be because those are the parts your pastor preaches on, Mm -hmm. or those are the parts that show up in Sunday school curriculum for adults or children, or uh, for the majority of Christians on the planet, those are the parts that show up in the lectionary. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. uh, I find with my intro students, uh, I teach a course called Introduction to Interpreting the Hebrew Bible Deuterocanonical Texts. And what they know uh, about uh, the scriptures uh, is is a narrow slice. And they are, some are aware that there are other slices which they have yet to learn and they're looking forward to it. But as we move through the course, they realize that the width of those slices uh, and the relative width of the slice that they know, the dimensions are completely off from what they imagined. And so- my my public work, uh, Twitter, uh, invited lectures, and my written scholarship, uh, it all has this undergirding of biblical literacy. So once mm-hmm. we know what's in the text, mm-hmm. then we can talk about what it means and how it means for mm-hmm. us in a completely different context than those in which it was produced and codified and preserved. Well, let's talk a little bit about the lectionary. Um, I, I, I I worship in a tradition that doesn't generally use a lectionary, but um, help help us understand the significance of this work. Uh, lectionaries are used in mainline congregations throughout, um, and so help us uh, help us. This is such a great gift to the body. I'm so excited about it. Certainly. So I'm going to repeat myself that the majority of Christians on the planet get their primary access to scripture through a lectionary. Mm-hmm. More than one billion Roman Catholics, all of the Orthodox Christians in various traditions, mm-hmm. Anglicans, uh, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, United Methodists, um, churches that have split off from them, UCC. Uh, American Baptists, and then in individual congregations, uh, non-denominational, single standing congregations. So that is how people are uh, hearing the text. And the primary lectionary that's used in the Protestant world is the Revised Common Lectionary. And then there is an Episcopal Lectionary, because of course, we have uh, the older arrangement of the scriptures, and our Bibles have 80 books, as did the earliest churches. Uh, And I always point out to my students that Protestants have the newest and the shortest Bible of all the Bibles in Christendom. Uh, That 66 book Bible didn't come into existence in English until 1782, which is really kind of late to be talking about Bible formation. Uh, And there's the Roman Catholic Missal System, and of course, uh, various Orthodox have, have their own. And the lectionary uh, pre-selects preaching scriptures, mm-hmm. and the scriptures that it selects are even more androcentric than the Bible, by which I mean the representation of women 
and girls in the RCL and the Episcopal lectionary, although the Episcopal lectionary does better because we have whole other books to draw from, like the book of Judith. Um, as much as the Bible is a male-centered text, as much as women are underrepresented in terms of presence and naming and speaking parts, the lectionary is worse. Mm. So as I was preparing to preach uh, one weekend, I got on Facebook and just whined, uh, whined on Twitter as well. Uh, I want to say it was November 17th, uh, maybe, uh, no, maybe November 2017. I have the date somewhere. And I just said, somebody should just make a whole new lectionary, one that focuses on women's texts. Mm. And uh, so many people said, well, you do it, Dr. Gaffney. And I was trying to write a grant proposal, and I didn't like the grant that I was proposing, and I wouldn't have given me any money for it. So I said, well, <laughs> well what, what would this look like? Mm -hmm. And... I had one of those writing moments where, you know, you've got something because you look up and it's two hours later, you're not even thirsty and, you know, right. you've got four pages. And so that is the inauguration of a women's lectionary for the whole church. I love it. I love it. So when you're bringing these texts together, um, well, first of all, talk just a little bit. I know this was a, a huge project, but just talk a little bit about coming and selecting the text and, you know, kind of a little bit of your approach as you were doing this, because the language in the lectionary is different. Um, the the so, translations are your own. And so there's some names that uh, show up for God that are very different than we would see in a NIV or New King James or even, you know, Common English Bible. So take us through a little bit of that. So this, the lectionary project uh, is a multi-component project. So one, there is the groups of texts for preaching. Mm -hmm. Those texts are completely new pairings uh, that I do, and I'll, I'll circle back around to each one of these, but I'm going to name the components first. So there's a completely new set of texts that are generated independently, not with reference to any other lectionary. Those texts are provided in uh, my own translation. I'm a Hebrew biblical scholar. I always work with my own text, even when I was preaching before this lectionary. So I do a particular style of translation that I'll also circle back around to that is gender expansive. The lectionary also comes with uh, text commentary. Uh, whenever scholars translate the text, they leave uh, some technical notes about uh, what's going on in manuscripts, uh, why particular things are translated certain ways, uh, all the technical stuff that other scholars like to read. And then there's a preaching prompt section. And there's a lengthy introduction that talks about the development of the project, uh, the translation, uh, and the questions that you're asking now. So the text selection uh, for me is driven primarily by the Hebrew Bible, which is a full and sufficient canon of scripture. Uh, it's not a magic eight ball for pred predicting Jesus. It is its own lived scripture. Uh, I start with that, uh, but I start with that in the under the rubric of the liturgical year, uh, that is the year starts uh, with Advent. So uh, I am 
rather than picking texts that, for example, the church reads predictively, I'm selecting texts that tell the story of uh, who Jesus was as a person in terms of his religious formation. What are the things he knows about his scriptures that we don't know, right? So, for example, the story of the Annunciation is an important part of the lead up to Christmas story mm-hmm. of uh, Gabriel's uh, Annunciation visit, visit to Mary. Well, that's not a new thing. Uh, it happens throughout the Hebrew Bible. So in one year, the first, the four weeks of Advent, I use the God's Annunciation to Hagar, God's Annunciation to Sarah, uh, God's Annunciation to Hannah, and God's Annunciation to the mother of Samson. So these are not predictive church texts, as the church likes to say, oh, look, there's Jesus in the Hebrew Bible, or they'll say Old Testament. But rather, these are setting the theological framework for the Annunciation story we get in the New Testament. And what it shows is a God with the same bag of tricks, a God who is faithful across time, a God who interacts with people uh, in the same patterns of fidelity and doesn't get new in the New Testament. And so in that way, it serves my interest as a biblical literacy uh, project. So uh, uh, that's an example. Okay. So I start with the Hebrew Bible text that's thematically going to tie into the season. And then I pick a psalm. And I often pick a psalm in which I imagine a woman character in the first lesson uh, praying that psalm. Uh, and for example, Psalm 113 to go t- with uh, Hannah's Annunciation. Psalm 113 uses much of the same language that's found uh, in Hannah's prayer that becomes the Magnificat. So mm-hmm. I pick a psalm that ties in. Um, often the gospel is driven by the season, right? If it's Advent, you're looking of one of two things about the first coming of Jesus as a baby or the second coming of Jesus, one of those get right texts. You know, because he's coming like a thief in the night. So those are our, <laughs> those are our two types of Advent texts. So that choice is kind of limited, right? Okay. So tie that in, and then the epistle is le- is last because the epistles uh, are not not only not woman friendly, they're not narrative friendly. Right. So it, it's it's difficult to weave those in. But so that's an example. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, it comes by. Uh, prayer, although not always prayer and fasting and and inspiration. I'm working with the gospel of Mark for year B. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a short gospel. And after Easter, I've had to go back and pick up pieces off the cutting room floor. And I decided to do the story of Legion uh, because so many people um, have uh, atypical uh, neurological formation. Uh, People have uh, social, cultural, psychological, emotional uh, Diseases and disease. Legion is an important place to talk about health and well-being and mental health, even mm-hmm. though it doesn't particularly focus on women. There are women in there. I got them in there, uh, or rather, I help the reader see where they where they are. So, what am I going to pair that with in the Hebrew Bible? That's kind of a unique genre. Uh, you don't have uh, demonic possession and casting out in the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. but you do have a woman who is a ghost master in indoor who calls up the spirit of Samuel for Saul. So now we can talk about um, not only uh, atypical neurological uh, processes and perceptions, but how some of those are perceived as, you know, people who 
hear voices, people who talk to spirits, how much of that is uh, people having alternative religious practices. So we can have just a whole conversation about that. And when I just finished translating those, because that's a piece I'm working on now, I realized both of those have characters who cry out in a loud voice. And both of those have characters who uh, bow down with their faces towards the ground. So there's parallel languages in those texts that I had never seen before. So that's a quick example of how I how I select them. Wow. Then the translations, gender expansive translation is something that I've been using for a while. And uh, the reader of my work can see it uh, at its earliest uh, in Daughters of Miriam. Mm-hmm. Part of that argument is that there are prophets in every section of the scriptures uh, of the Hebrew Bible. And I do look at uh, the New Testament rabbinic texts and the ancient uh, Afro-Asiatic world to see where women prophets are around Israel. And so just as we know that the Israelites, depending on your translation, the children of Israel, some really old translations, the sons of Israel, when they left Egypt, they didn't leave the daughters of Israel behind. Right. So you can translate the same expression in those three ways, but you can also translate it as the women, children, and men of Israel left Egypt. So because the particular grammar of Hebrew includes women in the same expression, you say it the same way if it's 100 men, if it's 99 women and one man, if it's 50 women and 50 men. You use the same expression. So whenever the text is uh, makes it clear that culturally and contextually women would be present, then mm-hmm. I use an expansive translation to make that clear. So I talked about how uh, I got women in or found women in the, in the Legion text. Mm-hmm. Everybody came to see the man who had been formerly cutting himself with rocks and saw him clothed in his right mind, an expression we love in the Black church. Right. Everybody who came, it wasn't men came, but women stayed behind. Everybody came. Everybody came. Women, children, men. Because if the women go to see what's happening, they're bringing the children with them. Mm -hmm. So that's an example. The crowds pressed up against Jesus. Jesus. The crowds of women, children, and men pressed up against Jesus. Because who's in a crowd? Everybody outside. Right. So those are examples of gender expansive translation. Another thing I do in gender expansive translation is take genealogies and use the female parent. Mm -hmm. So rather than saying the God of Jacob, I say the God of Rebecca's lineage. Mm -hmm. And then in those text notes, I let the reader know that I made this translation choice and that what it says in Hebrew is God of Jacob so that the reader always knows how I'm translating and why, and they can make their own their own choices. And so one of the things I suggest is that some congregations may want to use my translations. Some may just want to use those passages in their familiar and comfortable translation. Some mm-hmm. may want to read my translations while having their traditional translation in the bulletin. Harrison. Some may want to preach the familiar translation and use mine uh, in Bible study. Some are using my translations for devotional study. So there's all these options. Why why was that important to you to do that? 
to do to to, to like to do the well no to like to do the lineage uh oh, it, so it's a way of uh enriching the experience of reading the text as a woman mm-hmm. so um and the, the case is there are a few families in the biblical uh collection where uh the family does go by a woman's name but that's few and far between but so mm-hmm. this is part of the the things that fall under the rubric of gender expansiveness uh let me talk about god and god language in that style of translation so one of the things that i do is i use a variety of substitute language in the rabbinic Jewish tradition for the divine name. Uh, the most holy divine name in Hebrew, uh, yud heh vav heh, the four sacred letters called the Tetragrammaton, form a word that cannot and ought not be pronounced. In a lot of biblical scholarship, you will see those letters spelled out with vowels between them. Here's what the name is, and here's how you say it. Uh, but if you read carefully, you'll find that that's a scholarly speculation. It's mm-hmm. also incredibly offensive to Jewish people. Uh, the name is sacred and is not to be pronounced. And we as Christians uh, are accountable for our systemic and perpetual anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish practices in our practice of Christianity and pronouncing the name is one. And so because the name could not be pronounced, what one did when one reads and still does when one reads in Hebrew is one says another word. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of a footnote system. And the word that was this primary substitute word is Adonai, which means Lord. Mm-hmm. So what that means is every place you see Lord in your Hebrew Bible First Testament, it's not necessarily there. Uh, it's being imported as the substitute word. Mm-hmm. So uh, this name, this title that people are so invested in isn't even God's name. It's not Mm -hmm. even God's title. It was a title of reverence that's appropriate to say, Mm -hmm. but it's also a title with slaveholding implications. That's what you call a slaveholder in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a hierarchical title. It's a Mm -hmm. patriarchal title. Uh, And since there's an established practice of not, uh, of substituting a name, uh, and there are other substitutions. Sometimes Elohim God is substituted uh, in particular situations uh, in rabbinic literature. Sometimes Hashem, the name, uh, Hakadosh, the Holy One. So that tradition exists. And in the Dorshe Derek, Reconstructionist, now reconstructing Minyan, uh, in the Siddur, the prayer book, I read the translations of Rabbi Dr. Joel Rosenberg, whose Psalms included. The I am with which uh, we are familiar, the eternal, Mm -hmm. the fount of wisdom. And that's how he translated the divine name in the Psalms. And that really stayed with me. I had also learned in graduate school uh, that the Holy One is always appropriate, uh, whether you're doing it in English or in Hebrew. So I began that practice. And at the end of the lectionary, I offer the reader a list of all the divine titles I use in the work and some I didn't get around to. Um, And many of them uh, are feminine. I'm going to talk about the feminine language uh, next. Yeah, Uh, they, they, they are so beautiful. The names Uh, and are these uh, 
these names, these are names that you chose as a description or these they, are there precedents for using these names uh, through the rabbinic well, tradition or yeah. how, so, how did we come to all of these? They're beautiful. Many, most of them I chose. Uh, some of them are shared in common with uh, the prayer book of Reconstructing Judaism. Uh, things like uh, the ones I mentioned, the eternal, and some mm. some of those are things that are that are uh, in common usage. Uh, and then at the very beginning of the project, I had a partner, a writing partner. Uh, that partnership dissolved, uh, but she also has a credit in the beginning of the book. And mm. so some of the ones around wisdom, uh, her tradition was to use the Greek word Sophia. Uh, I used wisdom, uh, but still indebted to her and acknowledge uh, that. Uh, but many of them, my Black church ex- experience, uh, the Ark of Safety, we used, we used to talk about the Ark of Safety uh, in church. I saw um, the, rock, the rock who gave us birth. I, well, I that's, a, that's a quote from Deuteronomy. <laughs> so that's, let, that's a segue into the feminine language then. So uh, because I'm writing this lectionary for the whole church, writing for the whole church, focusing on women. I also wanted to have a space within the lectionary where there was a feminine God language. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the antecedents for that in scripture. And that places the Psalms so that when a pronoun is used, even though it is he in Hebrew, I use she. So the Psalms in the lectionary use explicit feminine God language. Needless to say that human language is inclusive language. I don't know any other way to speak about human persons. So it was important for not just women, but again, this is a lectionary for the whole church. It's important for men to hear feminine God language. Um, An antidote is a man uh, came out to a priest after uh, a service in which the lectionary was used. And he said, well, you know, I just feel very excluded by the language. And mm. she said, well, how do you think women have felt for the last 2000 years? You know, wow. The, the intent is not to punish. The intent is, again, to expand mm-hmm. our language and expand our language because what many people are unaware of, which is where our conversation began, is that there is, in fact, feminine God language in the scriptures. Some of it's not apparent due to translation issues. Some of it is explicit and unknown uh, because it's not preached on, because it's not in a lectionary. So I'll give you a couple examples. And are you going to talk about in the beginning? Yes. Okay. (laughs) That was was what I remember from the lecture. And I was like, yes, I love it. (laughs) So the Hebrew Bible Begins, when beginning, he, God, that's explicitly masculine God language, created the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, um, your verbs are gendered. They tell you what kind of entity, being, animal, person, or like French and table, I like French and la table and Spanish and la mesa, inanimate objects are also gendered. Uh, but then you get to that second verse, and the spirit of God, she was fluttering uh, over the face of the deep. 
Now, so, some translators will translate that wind and then they don't have to worry about gender. I, I think that's a cheat because as you know, God is presented as saying later, let us create humanity mm -hmm. in our image. And God has already been introduced using masculine and feminine language. And then God creates a humanity that is masculine and feminine. That's intentional. It's called an inclusio, like parentheses. Mm -hmm. Now, it sounds binary because it is, but it's also more than binary because it is a hendiades, like the expression good and evil. Good and evil doesn't just mean good stuff here, evil stuff here. It means everything in between right? Mm -hmm. You know, the world is not black and white. We have sunrise and sunset. But the thing is that every place you see the spirit in whatever translation you read, what you will never see is a pronoun. I'm talking about the Hebrew Bible. The New Testament is something else. And if we have time, we can circle back around to that. And that is because the only, trans, uh, the only pronoun you can legitimately use for the spirit um, the spirit came upon Saul, the spirit came upon Gideon, the spirit came upon uh, David. Um, the spirit uh, created me in Job. The only pronoun that you can use legitimately, according to the grammar of the language, is feminine. And so rather than say, as I translate from that passage in Job, the spirit she has made me, um, you'll get something like the spirit has made me. Mm -hmm. And so that is an intentional obfuscation uh, so that people simply will not know. And then we have these arguments. You can't use feminine language in church because it's not in the Bible. Well, it's actually on the first page, but the first page was cooked. So that you know. <laughs> but, but then there are the texts that where it is obvious um, mm -hmm. in Deuteronomy, you forgot the rock who gave you birth mm -hmm. um, in Job. When God is like, well, who is out here feeding all these creatures? You know, who hung these stars in the sky? Like, who are you? Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you my resume in question form, right? Mm -hmm. And then out of whose womb did the seed burst? Well, right. whose womb did this, who gave, and who gave birth to the frost of heaven, right? That's explicit feminine God language. Right. I will do one from the, the New Testament. The parable of the, uh, the lost sheep, the 99 and the one, right? So that's a male shepherd. Uh, we've been taught that the 99 are the ones who are, who are hanging tight with the, with the beloved community. The one goes off, lives a good life, gets in trouble, uh, gets brought back. There's a party rejoicing in the welcoming of the redeemed. The very next parable is there's a woman. She mm -hmm. has 10 coins. She loses one. She finds it. There's a rejoicing when the lost one is found. That is the same parable. Right. But right. nobody teaches that that woman is God. Is God. Everybody teaches that that shepherd is God in the previous parable. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in what the parable that, of the lost son, the father is, is God. Right. You know, yeah. That, that whole little trilogy there. Mm -hmm. Right. So what that means is that Jesus himself told these two parables, if the sequencing and literary sequence does not necessarily have anything to do with how anything might have happened, but it's presented for us as Jesus telling them back to back, if you don't get it this way, you'll get it that way. Mm -hmm. So I make a joke in Womanist Midrash, the book uh, in which the 
in the beginning uh, section to which you refer and we're discussing is that you might call me a literalist because this stuff is in there, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So for people who say, well, you know, I just, you know, I just follow Jesus. Well, what would Jesus do? Jesus Mm -hmm. used feminine God language when he told that parable, at least. So drawing on the fact that there is feminine language in the text, some of it explicit, some of it implicit, I made the decision to uh, use explicitly feminine language in the Psalms, even in places where it is not. For some people, that will not be uh, comfortable. And that's why I offer all of these different ways to use this resource, because mm-hmm. my hope is to get it into uh, the hands of people, uh, parishioners, preachers, priests, and pastors to use as is best in their context, which is not what's best in my context. Right. So my feelings are not hurt if someone says, that's too much for me to read from the pulpit, but I'm reading it devotionally. And I have a beautiful letter from a woman uh, who is reading it to her baby as she nurses. Mm. Uh, I I have a young man who is locked up, who is using the women's lectionary uh, in a male prison. Um, Wow. It's being used in five countries on four continents uh, that I know of. Um, So so, that's amazing. That's amazing. So that's what those are in in rough. Those are the things that characterize the translations that are an essential essential part. I minimize father language uh, for God uh, to where it's relational. Uh, Whenever Jesus says, my father, my Abba, I use that. I use Abba preferentially. But for something like the parable, Look at the lilies of the field, how they toil. Uh, Does not your heavenly provider know what you need? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, That works just fine there. Mm -hmm. Because I am working in the Western world uh, where the legacy of enslavement lies heavy. I am particular not to use language like dark to mean negative Mm -hmm. uh, because it doesn't mean uh, negative all the time in the biblical world. And it's not associated with human physical characteristics. So I will often use shadow or gloom, depending on the text. Mm-hmm. What What is God's space? Mm-hmm. I, use, I use the language of reign and realm and rule because mm-hmm. those are the, uh, the synonyms with which we're most familiar and comfortable. Sometimes it's about dominion, dominion and sovereignty, but more often I'm using the word majesty, right? Okay. Because as God welcomes us into God's space, uh, Jesus says, little children, I long to share with you the majesty of God. I'm using majesty rather than kingdom. And, and I uh, tweaked to majesty, uh, as one might say, uh, doing a translation of a passage in Hebrews where the word majesty uh, is used as a title for God. Mm. And I didn't remember seeing that. And uh, the word is actually feminine in Greek. So it sort of stuck with me and I chewed on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but so there's a list in the beginning of the te- of the volumes that talk about the translation choices and the rationale. And the last one has to do with enslavement. And that is counter to CED, uh, New Revised Standard, 
and JPS, uh, the Jewish Publication Society, which are, and the Inclusive Bible, which are really the only translations uh, that I welcome in my classroom. Um, I don't do servant, maid servant. I say slave, woman slave, because slavery was normative in the Bible, in the scriptures. God does not interfere with or rebuke it. And that's kind of a problem for us on this side of the water, at least mm -hmm. for me mm -hmm. on this mm -hmm. side of the water. Um, Jesus doesn't rebuke it, critique it, call for its end. And we are, we became a slaveholding society because of its presence in the scriptures, because Abraham was the wealthiest man in the East, blessed by God, and his wealth was human cattle and animal cattle. And so uh, people looked at Paul sending uh, mm -hmm. Onesimus back mm -hmm. into enslavement and extended that into our world. Mm -hmm. And so we have to acknowledge that that is our scriptural heritage and that we haven't wrestled with it well. That's great. That is great. This has been such a very rich discussion. Um, Hopefully, I will have the opportunity to have you back again. Uh, I would love for us to continue this further. Thank you so very much for being with us today. And um, I wish you well. And I can't wait to see uh, your next work that's coming out um, as you're working on the, the other Midrash. Uh, the, it was for which, which of the prophets? Is that the one that you? It's, it's now on the former prophets because it got so long. And so the <laughs> former prophets has already been submitted. And okay. the form of prophets, for those who do not know, is uh, the canonical arrangement of the Hebrew Bible, uh, which is different than Christian Bibles. And so the former prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Oh, awesome. I can't wait for that. Well, again, like I said, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to each and every one of you uh, as our listening audience who is with us today. Stay tuned for all the brand new episodes that continue to come to you weekly from our incredible team of co-hosts. In the meantime, go to the show notes and learn how you can follow and support the new members of our podcast. And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. You can also go to our website at www.cbeinternational.org for even more content. Subscribe to our blog, magazine, and academic journals. You can watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences and events. And you should go visit our bookstore where you can find a ton of talented authors and subjects that will enrich in your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents in leadership and service for the gospel, uh, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. I am Angela Raven-Anderson, and I would like to thank uh, Landon and the entire team, uh, tech team that puts this broadcast together, and all of CB International that makes this podcast possible. We are Mutuality Matters. Thank you for listening. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.